Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and on today's episode my co-presenter John Dorney will be talking to Dr Brian Hanley about his new book Boiling Volcano, The Impact of the Troubles on the Republic of Ireland 1968-79. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie or you can check out our Twitter page at irishhistorypod or check us out on Facebook facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show and if you get a chance please rate and review the show on iTunes it really helps us so here is Brian Hanley talking to John Dorney I'm here today with Brian Hanley uh, Brian's been working on a book about how the Northern Ireland conflict affected the Republic of Ireland uh, Brian do you have a, a speculative title for your book yes yeah, so well the working title is Boiling Volcano which was the theme of a Christmas Day message from Cardinal Conway, the head of the Catholic Church in Ireland, in 1971, where he basically, on RTE television, addressed his his flock and said that even though they may have thought that they were living in a peaceful society, once violence began, it spread remarkably quickly, and he'd seen that in the north, and he felt it could also happen in the south and there were tremors really throughout 1971 which led a lot of people to speculate from trade unionists to people across the mainstream political parties that the northern conflict was as they would have put it spilling over Mm -hmm. now just to set the scene i'd like to jump in in the middle of your book because your book uh, is about a decade the 70s in 1976 an incident which i think exposes a lot of the contradictions that exists in the relationship with the South to the Troubles. So Easter 1976, 10 years after the great commemoration of the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. In 76, the Easter Rising commemoration in Dublin is actually banned by the government. Can you talk about that just to set the scene of the kind of contradictions that are involved in the Southern response to the Troubles? Yeah, well, it was the Provisional Republican Movement's commemoration which was banned. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there was no official one. Yeah, the, the, the official one was, you know, almost non-existent and there were other smaller commemorations too but the provisional commemoration was banned and not only was it banned but there was a threat that people who attended who worked in the public service might lose their jobs um there was a real sense as well that you know people could be arrested on suspicion of involvement in the ira if they even attended these events and this came at a time when there's uh, the coalition government of finnegale and labor were It looked like there was going to be a full-scale confrontation between the Provisional IRA and the Southern Government. New legislation was being introduced which enabled people to be extradited or at least tried in the Republic for offences that were committed in the North. And this was tantamount essentially to to extradition. The IRA threatened that they would kill Gardaí or civil servants or judges who were involved in that process. So this this is, you know... Ratcheting it, up, ratcheting it up the tension fairly dramatically. And in the midst of that, there's the Easter commemoration, which the Republican movement successfully defies the ban, holds a march in the centre of Dublin. Again, the mainstream press talks, you know, of five, 6,000 people. Republicans claim there's 20,000. However many number there is, they successfully hold their commemoration. Uh, a member of the government, David Thornley, Labour Party TD, breaks ranks and actually appears on the the platform with 
various Republicans. He's booed by a large section of the crowd for his efforts. It isn't appreciated. It's not appreciated by the Labour Party either or by the government. But again, it shows you how the Northern Crisis was provoking all these kind of um, cracks in the establishment and in the society more generally. Yeah. Now, I'd just like to reflect, though, about this because it appears to be a very strange thing, certainly to an outsider, I suspect. So you've got the foundation stone of the state, the Easter Rising of 1916, which is held to have founded the independent Irish state, and the commemorations of it are being forbidden by a government uh, because of an, uh, the involvement of an illegal organisation which is trying, in theory, to further the stated goals of the state, which is to unite the country. So how can we, how can we make sense of all this, basically? Yeah, well, I mean, the provisional's message was quite simple. Um, they put up posters with the um, images of the seven executed signatories of the proclamation and said, support 1976 men of violence. Mm-hmm. Because as far as they were concerned, they were doing exactly the same thing. But by 1976, a large chunk of the South's population, and again, one of the problems of trying to write about the impact on on everyday life is that the vast majority of people are not recording their thoughts, they're not writing diaries, they're not appearing on television or radio, and they're not writing books. Um, So how do you know what they think? Well, from what we can gather, you know, by 1976, there's a great degree of disengagement, disillusionment, fear of the North. And therefore, the anniversary of the rising is being discussed on radio and television it's been discussed in the newspapers there are debates among historians and commentators about what it all means but you know for a large section of the population whether or not the provisionals are allowed to have a commemoration or not is not a crucial factor in their lives they'll certainly probably have an opinion on it but they're not either going to march in a band commemoration or are they really going to be you know um upset either way so again when you look at, at the impact of the North, at one level, it's everywhere. And I would argue it, it plays a huge role in, in all aspects of life in many ways. But on the other hand, you look at elections, for example, um, opinion polls and the run-up to elections in 1973, 1977. The North always lags far behind the economy, lags far behind industrial relations. Um, there's, you know, even in 1973, which is relatively close to the to the early stage of the conflict, you're talking about you know twelve percent who think it's the most important issue. That number has dropped to single figures by 1977. Now it informs other issues certainly. You know government ministers when they talk about unemployment, they talk about the lack of investment. They'll often say, and one reason why this problem is there because we've got to spend so much money on security, or we've got to you know we've got to deal with the bad image Ireland has abroad because of of this conflict. But you know for a lot of people, it's not central. Mm-hmm. Now that can also depend on where you live what you do mm-hmm. I, I guess what I'm getting at though is like the southern states response to the troubles is essentially to try to contain it and to um, contain the illegal organisations who are, are waging a kind of guerrilla war in the north you know it seems on the face of a contradictory can you try to explain why the southern state has this reaction to the troubles yeah well I mean I suppose it's contradictory if you think <clears throat> the southern state takes its claim on the north seriously and I think deep down a lot of people do share this aspiration towards the United Ireland. But in 1969-1970 the overwhelming response of the state, which at that time is, is governed by Fianna Fáil, 
is to see what's happening in the north as potentially a threat to itself. So it is really about containing the violence in the north, um, hoping that it doesn't spread, trying to deal with the spillover when it occurs, and then from differing perspectives looking for some sort of a solution that will bring stability to the north. Most of the southern political establishment would have hoped that would come about through some form of power sharing and an end to discrimination and all the rest of it in the north. I think you know most of them would have, would have um, wanted that. But they're primarily concerned about maintaining the southern state. And I suppose what's interesting is that um, to a great degree the southern population goes along with that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if we can again take the parties people vote for, you know, how they express their opinions, with exceptions, particularly in the early years when there's a lot of uh, mobilisation. So were Republican paramilitaries really a threat to the southern state? In in real terms, organisationally and in terms of their numbers, retrospectively they weren't. But that's not the way I think people would have thought at the time. Firstly, it's complicated by the fact that prior to 1969, the IRA had been upping its level of armed activity in the South and seemed to be contravening its own orders, which were that there wasn't going to be aggressive action in the 26 counties. After the split, the provisional IRA makes clear on several occasions that they are not interested in a confrontation with the state forces in the 26 counties. The official IRA do carry out various activities which don't really amount to a full-scale confrontation with the state. They're certainly, you know, um, against the law and they carry out arson attacks and bombings and during strikes and things like that. And you have Serrera, which is a much smaller organisation, which publicly says in 1970 that they are prepared, you know, to um, carry out aggressive action against the state. And again, the circumstances of that, I think, are interesting in themselves. The reality is, of course, that on numerous occasions, Republicans come into conflict with the state forces. It's almost unavoidable. So whether that's at demonstrations or protest marches or when it's training camps are raided or when it's the Republican organisations begin to raise funds through banks and post office robberies, there are numerous clashes. And by the mid-1970s, nobody's really sure whether or not this policy of non-confrontation applies because even though the provisional IRA on the one hand will say we don't intend to threaten the state... There'll be speeches made by some of their leaders that'll talk about overthrowing Leinster House or describe, you know, you know, most of the population of the South as quislings or traitors. Mm. Um, the, certainly by 1975, 1976, there's numerous occasions when Gardaí are fired on um, and where the line between whether this has occurred due to the initiative of one or two people or whether this is a general policy is, is unclear. There's a whole spate of bombings which are often, it's often very confusing. Nobody's quite sure who's doing them. There's loyalist attacks happen on a fairly regular basis, of course, in the early to mid-70s. There's also bombings that are attributed to Republicans. So you, you increasingly see in the rhetoric, particularly of the Fine Gael Labour Coalition, and particularly from Fine Gael leaders, notably from, from Liam Cosgrave himself, who has a, a family connection to the... the um, Civil War period, and also from some IRA leaders, rhetoric which is, is framing this very much in terms of the Civil War. Now, it never is anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, 
the comparison is is rhetorical. But certainly that's the way both sides sometimes see it. At the time when the northern conflict breaks out in 1969, there's actually a Fianna Fáil government. And how does their policy on the north line up at the, in the early years of the Troubles in terms of uh, censorship, in terms of repression? So the interesting thing is that there is a popular memory. And one of the things I wanted to try and do was look at how people talk about the 70s now and compare it to what was actually being said at the time. And there is a real popular memory of the coalition, the heavy gang. The Fine, Fine Gael Labour Coalition. The Fine Labour Coalition from 73 to 77. The use of um, brutality by the Gardaí, the heavy gang, censorship, Section 31, as um, overseen by Conor Cruz O'Brien, I think. And everybody associates those kind of policies with that government. But in actual fact, Fianna Fáil, when they left office in 1973, had a far more hardline reputation for law and order. Um, they had introduced, reintroduced special criminal courts. They had pushed through a very stringent Offences Against the State Act, which had brought in sweeping powers for the Gardaí. They'd reopened the Curra as a military prison. They threatened to introduce internment in 1970. They had uh, strengthened Section 31. And that, of course, was originally a Fianna Fáil measure. And they'd also sacked the Gartie authority. So actually, a lot of the policies which we associate with the coalition were first brought in under Fianna Fáil. And that their government was regarded as a law and order government. And in fact, they were, they were going to the country on the basis in 1973, at one point, arguing that Fine Gael and Labour would be weak on security. Mm-hmm. And you needed Fianna Fáil in power to ensure the state was safe. Let's just backtrack a little bit. What, what are the special criminal courts? Special criminal courts are, are originally dating back to 1939 and the introduction of military tribunals. The theory is that when the state is under threat, it can't allow democratic niceties such as jury courts who could be threatened or intimidated by um, subversives. So therefore you have courts that don't have juries. Now they didn't reintroduce military tribunals, but instead they reintroduced a court with three judges, but without a jury for initially cases involving Paramilitaries. Section 31 of the Broadcasting Act is very famous among Republicans, but what does it mean, Section 31? Section 31 was introduced originally in 1960, and the purpose was that the government could ban certain groups from the airways if they were deemed to be subversive. Mm-hmm. And in 1961, for example, it was a general election, and Sinn Féin's party political broadcasts weren't allowed because they were deemed to be part of an ongoing IRA campaign at the time. So Section 31 exists before the 1970s. And when the Northern Crisis blows up, it's really unclear, initially at least, how this policy will be applied by RTE or by the government. And it's in 1971 that Cherry Collins, the minister, the relevant minister, Fianna Fáil minister, begins to demand that RTE no longer interview uh, members of the IRA. And this is eventually extended to include Sinn Féin by 1976, which occurs under Conor Cruz O'Brien. I think one of the the interesting things is that Conor Cruz O'Brien is very intellectually committed by the mid-70s to censorship. He isn't always committed to it. In fact, he's a critic of censorship before he comes to power. But And he writes a lot about why Section 31 is justified and the democratic system has to be allowed to bar people who, who want to overthrow it from the airways. So he's associated almost entirely in the public mind with Section 31. Mm. I mean, nobody writes about Jerry Collins in Section 31, but it's actually Fianna Fáil, who are on a collision course with RT for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Northern Crisis really sharpens that. RT deny 
Fianna Fáil's allegations that they're giving a free ride to Republicans. And again, this is another interesting thing. Um, you, you will hear people today talk about how anti-Republican RTE is and how Republican voices were barred. In the early 70s, Fianna Fáil and sections of the media who agreed with them tended to argue that RTE was soft on Republicanism, that Republicans and the IRA were given a free ride at the station, that undemocratic groups had undue influence and that essentially the station were giving um, you know, a platform to these people who had no mandate from the people at all. So, you know, the scene prior to 1972 is that the government are, are very critical of RTE and always looking for ways to try and, and, and make them um, obey their, their kind of instructions about censorship. Yeah, you mentioned the role hindsight plays. And one of the surprising things I found reading through your chapters was some personalities who today we would think of as very anti-Republican or certainly very anti-provisional Republican, including Owen Harris, Kevin Myers, Tomás Maguilla, actually were against uh, censorship and, and more pro-Republican in, in the early days of the Troubles. I mean, does see Tomás Maguilla uh, walked out of RT in protest that Rory O'Brody wasn't interviewed. Yeah, well, I so mean, there's, it's you know, hindsight is a is yeah. a distortion in some ways. Yes, it is, and and also rewriting by the people involved is is a distortion. I mean, when Conor Cruz O'Brien became minister in 1973, and by this stage he decided that that RT uh, did need to be um, brought under control, he goes to the director general of RT and says that the IRA are in spiritual occupation of Montrose, and he wants certain people sacked, and the person he demands. Um, to be dismissed is Owen Harris because in the early 1970s Owen Harris and the Republicans at RTE who were largely official Republicans were not in favour of Section 31. Harris in 1971 says we would rather transmit no programmes than transmit programmes that are censored. Um, they are regarded as the radical Republican voice in the station and they actually are at that point. Um, they're not in favour of Section 31 they are in favour of defined government um, Harris is producer of FAOC, which interviews, tries to interview Tomás McGilla and Rory O'Brady about internment in December 1970 because the Fianna Fáil government have announced they're going to introduce limited internment. And when um, O'Brady isn't allowed on that programme, McGilla walks off in protest. And actually, I mean, people would argue that Harris set that up to embarrass the government and he defends then the programme's independence afterwards. So at the time, he's seen as a turbulent, mm. you know, militant voice within RTE. Similarly, in December 1972, when Kevin O'Kelly, an RTE reporter, is jailed for contempt for refusing to hand over a tape recording of an interview with Sean McStiafon to the Gardaí, and when the Fianna Fáil government say to the RTE authority that you've got to bring, you've got to essentially um, denounce your reporter and, and agree with the government's line, they refuse and they're sacked by the government. Kevin Myers resigns from RTE because he says Section 31 makes doing a journalist's job impossible and that it's again an interference with democracy and with the uh, with, a, with a free press and that does provoke quite a crisis at the time because it's it's at the same time that the government are inter attempting to introduce uh, um, amendments to the offences against the state act and it does really provoke the one major crisis about the question of censorship that does go beyond rte and the press and reach into the, the public somewhat but the, the government went out in the end but I mean, just to explain to anyone who's not aware, I mean, Owen, because of a very acrimonious parting between the official and the provisional wings of the Republican movement, the likes of Owen Harris and Tomás Maguilla would later on be violently hostile to the likes of Rory O'Brody. And Kevin Myers had a conversion of sorts to, I guess, a kind of unionism or neo-unionism in the 80s or 90s. And today is, is very anti-Republican. But 
at the time that wasn't the case. Yeah, well, again, this is the, the, the this is the problem with history um, that you know a person can say in twenty seventeen that they've always held this view, but they may not always have held. You know, and I think Myers does write about the fact that he was. You know, he did have different views in the early 70s Owen Harris tends to write as if he's always been holding the line against what he sees as this you know tide of of, of provisional uh, fascism that's just not the case I mean the official republicans in RTE were concerned with official republican politics and that was republican politics um, Owen Harris and a number of others um, in the late 1970s came around to a different point of view and I think a lot of the histories of RTE and a lot of histories of, of these arguments by people like Mary McAleese and Betty Purcell are written by people who were in RTE in the late 70s and early 80s. Mm. Um, and by that stage, Owen Harris had become a supporter of Section 31 and he'd also become then very much seeing himself and his um, organisation as in the front line against what they saw as the threat of the provisionals. McGillis, slightly differently, is a political leader and, and, and you know wouldn't have been necessarily had exactly the same opinions as, as, as Harris at that point. But I think what's important is that in the early 70s, their politics are different, their activities within the station are different, and that's why on several occasions they're in the front line of confrontation with the government. Again, in 1974, Harris is involved in producing a programme about internment, which absolutely you know, drives Conor Cruz O'Brien to distraction. He sees it as IRA propaganda, and he demands RTE take action, and ultimately Harris is moved from that programme in seven days um, because... Of, of that dispute but it's important to look at what they're saying at the time and what's happening at the time not just what people say now and of course what people say now is is, is important but also you've got to look at, at quite a different context then mm-hmm. now before moving on to the coalition government you mentioned the Fianna Fáil uh, flirted with internment yeah well in December 1970 they announced they were going to introduce limited internment and they were going to intern initially members of Serera. Serera were an organisation which initially developed as a split away from the IRA in Dublin. Um, then a number of veterans of the IRA who had emigrated after the border campaign in London and become involved in far-left politics, also affiliated to Serera. And very crudely, they were well known in the late 1960s for being the group that robbed banks um, prior to the IRA going back into the, the um, bank robbing um, business by 1970 Sarah are still operating and in the spring of 1970 there's a bank robbery in Dublin which a guard Richard Fallon is shot dead for which Sarah is blamed and this again hadn't happened since the 1940s so there's a lot of shock and a lot of outrage um, in December 1970 according to the government's position which is Jack Lynch's Taoiseach um, the government receives information from the Gardaí that Sarah are planning to either kidnap or assassinate either Peter Berry of the Department of Justice or perhaps government ministers. And they say this is a credible threat and therefore they're going to introduce limited internment without trial. Now, the reaction is shock because internment had been introduced during the border campaign. Most people, most opinion in the South doesn't regard the situation in December 1970 as meriting internment without trial. People obviously make the argument that once you introduce internment, the state then has the power to lock up other people. Um, obviously, Republicans are opposed to it, but so are most of the trade unions. So is the Labour Party. Again, Conor Cruz O'Brien is, is physically attacked 
in the Dáil Chamber by Fianna Fáil TDs as he denounces internment. Stevie Coughlin, a Fianna Fáil, or a Labour TD from, from Limerick, denounces the government, says, you know where this will end. This will end in internment camps and hunger strikes. Be that on your head. Um, so it's very, very, taken very seriously and creates a great deal of, 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 of public uh, uproar. The one uh, voice in support of the government, interestingly enough, is the Irish Press newspaper, which is the popular Republican daily, very much reflects popular republicanism, very anti-partition, um, emotes on the IRA north of the border, um, to some extent, tends to be quite, um, as long as what they're doing there stays there, it, it at that at that stage tends to, to write about them fairly positively. But is is almost, when you read it now, almost embarrassingly pro-government to the point that Fianna Fáil are never wrong and therefore it is the one voice that says perhaps it's justified. We Nobody wants internment, but perhaps the government has no choice in this matter. Then there's a storm of protest. Lists are drawn up by the Gardaí of people who are going to be interned. And then the matter is dropped and just never spoken about again. Yeah. Uh, except in August 1971 when internment is introduced in the North and it's denounced by Jack Lynch and Fianna Fáil and the Unionists remind him that he was attempting to introduce it um, less than a year before, and of course the backstory for that is fascinating. Okay, so what's what is the backstory behind the idea of internment? Well, over a decade later, Desmond O'Malley, who was Minister for Justice in 1970, is interviewed in, in McGill magazine, um, and he's asked, you know, well, what you, you were a government minister that talked about introducing internment? Why? And he said, well. The government had credible information that Sarah were prepared to go as far as assassinating senior Gardaí or government ministers. But the government also knew that neither the provisional IRA or the official IRA wanted internment in the South. That both of them at that stage wanted to use the South as a base and wanted to do as much as they could without provoking a major clampdown from the authorities. So essentially O'Malley suggests in this interview, and he also reiterates it in his, his recent biography that the government thought that if they threatened to introduce internment either the official or the provisional IRA would go to Sarah and ensure that Sarah didn't do anything like shooting uh, policemen or government ministers and effectively what he was saying was that the government threatened to introduce internment to make a large republican military organization threaten a small one mm. and he says and that was the result and it was the desired result now in an interview for a thesis in UCD 20 years ago, Sean McStephon, the ex-chief of staff of the provisional IRA, was interviewed. And in that interview, he said that at that time, he sent people to Sarah and said, if internment is introduced down here, you're dead. Now, I don't have any more evidence other than that. Mm. But it does seem to be the case that a government publicly threatened to introduce internment without, without trial, a very drastic measure, mm. in order, in the hope that other paramilitary organisations would threaten a smaller one. And this seems pretty remarkable. I mean, it's not a big secret, but it's not really discussed yeah. to any great extent. Not the last time it ever happened, though, I suspect, in terms of the recent peace process. Yeah, well, that, again, is another... But that's another story. Yeah, yeah. And now, moving on to the uh, coalition government. So there's, there's a general election in 1973, and the government that comes in is a Fine Gael Labour coalition. And the reputation that they have again, possibly in hindsight, is that they're much harder line on Republicans south of the border. Is that true? Yeah, it is true. Although, again, initially, their, their um, 
their image is that they're much more liberal because in December 1972, people like Gareth Fitzgerald had spoken out against the sacking of the RT authority. Conor Cruz O'Brien had again condemned Fianna Fáil's attempt to impose restrictions on the media. Labour TD certainly had voted against the Offences Against the State Act amendment. Fine Gael had been on the verge of voting against it, and this would have caused a general election, but bombs in Dublin in December 1972 effectively changed the course of, of that whole issue. And again, that's another, that's another story. But certainly they would have condemned some of Fianna Fáil's hardline policies. And Fianna Fáil, on the other hand, would have, would have said during the election, I mean, one of Fianna Fáil's uh, election broadcasts features images of bombs in Dublin and essentially said that without us, the state will be weaker. And that seems to have done them some good in border areas where their vote went up. But nevertheless, there's a Fine Gael Labour coalition. From a very early stage, however, um, there's confrontation with Republicans. Hunger strikes in prisons, particularly Mountjoy and, and Port Leash, um, clashes on the street. And Conor Cruz O'Brien particularly begins to tighten up Section 31 effectively by 1976 making it illegal for members of Provisional Sinn Féin, along with members of illegal organisations, to, to be interviewed. And it does become the case that that um, government does take a harder line in many ways and comes closer to deadlier confrontation on numerous occasions than Fianna Fáil um, had had to. Now, one of the things that is going to strike um, someone familiar with Irish history immediately is, whereas Fianna Fáil has the heritage of a party that comes from the IRA, originally, um, on the anti-treaty side of the Civil War. The government that's now in power from 1973 onwards has the heritage of the other side of the Civil War. Um, and this seems to affect people's mindsets in the 70s, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, very much people frame it in terms of of the legacy of the Civil War. So, you know, Liam Cosgrave talks about not for the, the first time has this party stood between the Irish people and anarchy. He puts, you know, firstly, he's part of a coalition. It isn't just his party, but that's, he sees it as his party, Fine Gael, standing up against the Republicans, just as his father had done. And in the early 70s, I mean, Fine Gael had, had also had people within it who'd, who'd been pretty nationalistic in terms of their opinions about the North. And in fact, Cosgrave would have been seen by many people. I mean, the, the Irish Independent does a feature um, on him in, in the mid-70s and talks about how you know, he, he wasn't part of the home rule tradition within Fine Gael. He came from the, the Republican side of Fine Gael and he'd been given to anti-British speeches himself. You know, in 1969, he said no Irish person can welcome the arrival of British troops in Irish soil. In 1972, again, talks about ultimately the only solution is the United Ireland to which the Irish people are entitled. But also that tradition in Fine Gael, which is nationalistic, but sees themselves as the defenders of the state and sees the the provisionals essentially as the anti-treatyites, as the wreckers, mm-hmm. and is very determined not to give them any leeway. And this results, of course, in not just um, legal measures, but in leeway being given to the Gardaí in many cases to ill-treat suspects, and in the wholesale use of things like um, Section 30, which allows people to be arrested and held for, for certain periods of time, to be used again and again and again to pick people up, not just people involved in Republican politics, but people involved in left-wing politics and protest, protest politics yeah, this of all is, kinds. So, yeah, this is the so-called heavy gang. What, what was the heavy gang, for people who are not aware? Well, the heavy gang is a name given after a court case in Cork 
think it was the, the solicitor, Gerald Goldberg, uh, talked about the heavy gang coming down from Dublin to get confessions. And then that term becomes more widely used in the press. The Gardaí always deny that there's a heavy gang. But people argue within um, elements of the special branch and the murder squad, there are detectives who get a reputation for getting confessions. And that essentially, by the mid-1970s, in cases involving the Republican movement, usually, but not exclusively, that suspects are being ill-treated, being beaten up, um, being threatened, and confessions are being forced from them. Um, And this, of course, is a highly contentious area. And, I mean, a detective is actually interviewed on Sunday Independent in the mid-1970s, and he says, of course, we don't use kid gloves neither do our opponents um, but we don't torture them um, we, we, we may be tough but we you know these people will just laugh at us otherwise and, he, and then of course he says and what kind of methods do you think they'd use uh, with their prisoners and the big question again which people have to remember the context of is that um, most people aren't involved in Republican politics most people aren't involved in confronting the state in any way so even though ill treatment might be widespread among a section of activists most people are still not going to direct directly confront that so you have a situation for example where the sunday world which is probably the most anti-establishment voice in the media which regularly highlights cases of guarded brutality ill treatment in prisons um you know interviews people on the left and in republican politics and and is really you know takes a very strong line against the coalition government um they carry out a poll in early 1977 and a majority of people accept that the Gardaí are ill-treating suspects. You know, over about 60% of respondents say they believe the Gardaí are beating up suspects. But a higher majority want um, tougher methods from the Gardaí because you also have in the 1970s a huge upsurge in ordinary crime mm-hmm. and a fear of ordinary crime. So you have a constant refrain that the Gardaí aren't tough enough and are not being given enough power. While on the other hand, people are also complaining that the Gardaí have excessive powers and are actually, you know, abusing that power. And it's in the mid-1970s, of course, you see the setting up of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. You see a whole range of cases, some of them, which is the cases involving um, Nicky Kelly and others who are who are um, arrested for alleged involvement in a robbery. And um, and and essentially it's accepted that concession, confessions are, are forced from them. You see all those cases, but you also see lots of people demanding that the Gardaí be given tougher powers to deal with, you know, burglars or, or muggers, for example. So, again, while the North is always there and we can see this whole series of confrontations, very dangerous confrontations, for a lot of people, there's all these other questions that are bothering them as well. Um, and and that makes it, you know, difficult to distangle what people actually think about all these controversies. Sure. Um, we should talk about a man in particular uh, who was always associated with this period, and that's Conor Cruz O'Brien who was, I would say, probably a hate figure for modern Republicans. Um, what is Conor Cruz O'Brien's real role throughout this period? Well, I mean, his real role is, I mean, he's significant because not only is he a, uh, an intellectual, but he's a government minister, so he gets to um, actually, you know, um, put into practice some of the things he writes about. Of course, he's minister for Post and Telegraph, so he's supposed to be trying to fix, you know, the phones and not deal with the North. But he's Labour Party spokesman on the North and therefore becomes seen by many people as the government's voice on Northern affairs. Despite the fact that he's never, and I'll I'll mention the heavy gang again, because there is an an incidence where, um, 
you do see this this uh, some of these complexities. I mean, Cruz O'Brien. Very few government ministers probably had a thought out position that saw Northern Ireland as a completely separate place and that took a unionist position. He effectively does take a unionist position in that he accepts the unionists have a right to run their own state by the mid-1970s. Most government ministers wouldn't have thought it through that much. They would have seen it more in terms of we want peace and we want stability and the IRA are threatening that so we've got to uh, to deal with them but they wouldn't have really you know they'd, they'd have been different views on what exactly Northern Ireland should be so Gareth Fitzgerald wouldn't have had the same position on the North as Conor Cruz O'Brien so O'Brien's view is basically that it's a kind of foreign affairs kind of thing well he comes to the view he essentially <clears throat> comes to the view ultimately and again this is where you've got to trace a person's career um he comes to the view ultimately, yes, that the unionist position is a justified one and that therefore it's one that Southern nationalists have to recognise more and see as more important really than the nationalist position because he thinks that's, you know, what people in the South have always done and therefore, you know, um, the nationalists get too much of a positive hearing. But again, now, at one level I'm wary of talking about him because it, it, it's kind of wrong to see him as the, the dominant figure in everything that happens in the 1970s because then that lets other people off the hook. Mm. I mean, Section 31 was instituted by Fianna Fáil. It was supported by Fine Gael and it was supported by Labour when they were in government. And all those parties oversaw it until the 1990s. And any of them could have gotten rid of it at any stage. But what you tend to get today is that when people discuss Section 31, they, they kind of say, we were all against that, but then you had madmen like Conor Cruz O'Brien. Mm. Um, actually, you weren't all against it. You know, it, it remained the law until the 1990s because the mainstream political establishment supported it. And the mainstream opinion in RTE supported it as well. Again, there's a kind of a, a self-serving mythology on behalf of Owen Harris and also his detractors that really censorship in RTE was to do with him and a handful of other people who supported the Workers' Party. In actual fact, the mainstream in RTE put up with Section 31, you know, mm. In theory, the National Union journalists was opposed to it, but ultimately they knew that most of their members would not go on strike mm. to put an end to this. Um, people who supported Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, were happy enough with it. Mm. So it was a mainstream measure, and most of the general public, for a variety of reasons, were never going to get that upset about it. Even if you know you were asked in an opinion poll, do you think it's right or wrong? Most people would probably say it's wrong. Mm. But if you lived in Dublin, or you lived in Wexford, or you lived in Louth, until 1988... You could see Republicans being interviewed on UTV and BBC. Mm. And as I remember, people from Dublin used to be very proud to tell me that, you know, RTE was for cultures. So actually, you know, one of the things that makes the question of censorship messy is that Republicans were not banned from British television. And a lot of people in Southern Ireland could watch British television. So you could until actually Until a much see, later period. Until yeah. about 1988. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... And people point this out. In, in 1976, there's a programme about the 50th anniversary of the Rising on Thames Television, mm. ITV. Yeah. And it features Conor Cruz O'Brien, Sean McEntee, veteran of 1916, and his father-in-law. Mm -hmm. And it also features Dahi O'Connell of the Provisionals. Mm. And people point out that Conor Cruz O'Brien is, is taking part in a programme which also, in a different segment, interviews the leader of the Provisionals, mm. and which has been shown, and lots of people in Ireland are able to watch. But he's in favour of banning them from television in the Republic of Ireland. And a lot of people point out that this doesn't really make a huge amount of sense but O'Brien does have an intellectual position in favour of censorship lots of other people maybe don't intellectualise it but they're happy enough that it's there and that the reason it remains there is is, is because the mainstream political establishment and pilots it 
Um, one of the central kind of themes here is the state broadcaster, RTE, and the role politicians believe it should have. Um, can you speak a bit about the relationship and the independence or otherwise of RTE from politicians at the time? Yeah, I mean, throughout the 1960s, Fianna Fáil, who were in government for, for this, that period, seemed to assume that the state broadcaster would essentially represent their view as the government. And there's a number of confrontations when RTE began doing investigative programmes or, or feature people from the left, for example, who are critical of Fianna Fáil and Charles Hawley and other people make a lot of complaints about RTE's policy. But there's quite an interesting meeting in, in August, early August 1969 where Jack Lynch as the Taoiseach meets senior people from RTE and also the editors of several daily newspapers. And he tells them that the government are intent on bringing in strict security legislation to deal with IRA activities in the South. And that's interesting in the sense that he's telling journalists what the government are going to do. So he obviously feels fairly confident that they're not going to have a headline the next day, mm. you know, exposing all this. But then he also says that the government are worried that the IRA are being glamorised by the way they're being covered by RTE and the newspapers and would newspapers play down IRA statements use the term illegal organisation rather than IRA, which had been a term that was introduced um, decades before and had kind of fallen out of use. Most newspapers did call them the IRA by the late 1960s. And he essentially, you know, tells them what the government intend to do and asks them to support that. That's quite interesting in a way that he assumes that they're not going to, you know, publish editorials the next day attacking him. And none of them do. I mean, the the Irish press group start using the term illegal organisation a little bit more. There's no hint in any other coverage that this meeting has taken place. But what throws this all out of kilter, really, is that within about two weeks, the North explodes. And by September 1969, magazines like Hibernia, investigative magazines, are saying that the government had intended to bring in new legislation, but they can't now because of the public sympathy for Northern nationalists and the fact that clamping down on the IRA in the South would actually be seen as, as in some way, you know, attacking northern nationalists so it's one occasion where the government has to hold back um, because of of popular opinion but it's quite interesting that the government would feel that it could tell rte and the newspapers you know or at least advise them on what it wanted you know the way it wanted them to cover republican activities we've talked about the state broadcaster rte what about the printed press how did they line up on the on the northern conflict well initially the majority of, of the printed press. I suppose, again, you have to remember, in, in the early 1970s, most people who bought a daily um, newspaper also bought a local paper. So a very large chunk of the population are still reading the local press. And, and most local newspapers, particularly in the early 70s, do express opinions about the North mm. and about government policy regarding the North. Um, the Irish press was, the, in many ways, the, the voice of popular republicanism in that it tended to take... Um, an anti-partitionist view from the early 1970s it's predicting very strongly that partition is coming to an end it tends to very much present the IRA's campaign as inevitable and the unionists and the British as responsible for the violence and then once anything happens an inch across the border takes a very strong line that the state must be defended Mm -hmm. and throughout from 1970 to 72 every measure that Fianna Fáil introduces in order to maintain law and order, the Irish press supports. And it talks about the huffings and puffings of ultra-liberals. Um, it's quite contemptuous of those who are 
talk about the threat to civil liberties and continually argues that northern nationalists' um, interests are best served by having a strong southern state under Fianna Fáil. So even during the arms trial, when they, the emotional coverage of the paper would lead you to believe it would support people like Neil Blaney and, and those who are accused of importing arms. It actually, during the arms trial, very strongly argues that Jack Lynch's government <coughs> must remain in control. And it uses terms like, we do not need northerners coming down here and telling us. So it's an anti-partitionist paper, but very, very strongly pro-Fianna Fáil, which means it supports Fianna Fáil in almost everything it does. After 1973, when the coalition comes to power, the Irish press becomes very strongly in favour of civil liberties and becomes a very, very... Um, strong critic of the coalition to the extent that of course Conor Cruz O'Brien famously threatens um, to, to bring the editor Tim Pat Coogan to court because of letters that he's publishing so it's, its policy does change even though emotionally it tends to present um, an anti-partitionist line and again becomes more critical of the IRA as the years goes on as well and is very critical of anything that the IRA might do in, in Southern Ireland um, the Irish Independent historically the Fine Gael newspaper presents a sympathetic line towards northern nationalists in the early years of the conflict very strongly pro-government by the mid-1970s but at the same time the Sunday Independent for example would have taken um, somewhat a more contradictory line mm. you had people like Vincent Brown for example working for it so the Sunday Independent interviews IRA leaders in the mm. mid-1970s. And this is something that's unthinkable today. Yeah, yeah. it would interview, interviews, interview with the Army Council of the IRA in, in 1976, for example. Was that An in-depth interview. Was that allowed under Section 31? Yes, it was. And this is something that Cruz O'Brien did flirt with the idea of actually prosecuting newspapers, mm. but ultimately didn't, didn't okay. go there. Um, so just to clarify, the Section 31 only applies to broadcasting. Yes. It doesn't apply to the printed word. Um not technically as far as I know, although it, I think it could be extended to the printed word, potentially. And there is arguments about that in the mid-1970s about articles which Hibernia print and which the Irish press print, whether these are, are encouraging support for subversives. And it's something O'Brien you know, thinks about doing, which causes a great deal of controversy. But again, independent newspapers, there is more diversity than you would imagine and the Sunday Independent, you know, for example, in 1976 as well, when Michael Farrell's very strongly uh, anti-unionist Northern Ireland, The Orange State, is published, they serialise that book over several Sundays and they carry then a page of discussion and reviews of Northern Ireland, The Orange State. So, again, Republican voices aren't completely excluded mm. from independent newspapers. Probably the most, um, the most in-depth coverage in many ways in the Irish Times, which again... Remarkably, historically a unionist paper, but mm. by 1969, the editor is Douglas Gageby, who's from a Protestant background, but is a nationalist, mm. and therefore believes the North should get more coverage. And they actually get criticised for having too much coverage of the North, mm. because they often have every front page mm. led by an ordinary story. But it's in the Irish Times, for example, that Nell McCafferty, for example, has reports from Derry in 1972. She's an interview with the young Martin McGuinness, which was republished again mm. this year after his death. Um, you would have a lot of in-depth stuff from behind the barricades in Derry, interviews with both official and provisional IRA leaders. Um, a number of journalists working at the paper would have sympathies for the official Republicans, people like Dick Walsh, who would have had the ear of people like Carl Goulding. So there is quite a lot of coverage of republicanism and radicalism in the Irish Times. You do have journalists also then like John Healy, 
who from Mayo, very, very anti-IRA and from a very early stage, strongly critical of what he sees as the softness of RTE and other sections of the media of the IRA. So there is a diversity in the national press, which um, people might be surprised by and, you know, belies the idea that the Republican voice is completely excluded, even if there is a lot of the time harsh criticism of Republicans. And I think the most interesting one for anybody who reads the Sunday World today is that Sunday World is launched in 1973, modelled on British tabloids who also have their own sale in Ireland. Of course, British newspapers are, are sold here as well. The Sunday World um, is a very, very anti-establishment paper which is prepared to break stories about Garda brutality, mm. about Port Leash, describes Port Leash as the worst prison in Europe, mm. highlights conditions in Port Leash, um, very critical of government policy in terms of what it terms collaboration with the British mm-hmm. um, Employs a lot of radicals like Jerry Lawless, Amy McCann as columnists. Um, also, in terms of other social stories, is is quite um, left centre as well. Which is not something we'd associate with tabloid newspapers today. No, um, and and the Sunday World, you know, celebrates the downfall of the coalition in nineteen seventy seven. Says good riddance. Mm. Talks about how Paddy Cooney, the Minister for Repression, Conor Cruz O'Brien, was out to censor the media. So it's a very political paper in many ways. Now it does. It's it's. Its selling point was that it had the beginnings of, of, in Irish terms at least, page three type pinups, extensive coverage of sport, and also they realised that TV personalities as newspaper columnists could be a big selling point. So mm. Jimmy McGee on sport, for example, Gay Byrne as a columnist, people like that, Mike Murphy. So they were they were very much ahead in terms of of, of how to market a newspaper, but politically certainly a very anti-establishment paper. Mm. But yeah, which I don't think there's any equivalent of today. No, and in, I, I in think Southern Ireland anyway. There was more diversity really in the 1970s media about the issue of the North than there was, say, in the last decade about economic policy in in this part of Ireland. And people might be a bit surprised by that because I think the the general view is that you've got this blanket censorship and people can't, you know, express contradictory views. You look at the local press and you get the full range, you know. From in the early 1970s newspapers, which are essentially endorsing the IRA's campaign, mm. to the other end of the spectrum, you know, where the IRA are, are blamed for every ill in society. So there's there's quite a divergence. Okay, I want to wrap up by kind of giving some very blunt narrative statements from various point of views, and you can discuss maybe some of the validity behind some of them. So let's start with the the mainstream kind of Republican one today, which you'll often hear, and it's that. Uh, the southern state uh, tra- basically uh, cordoned off the north, refused to deal with the problem, repressed Republicans in the south, and through censorship uh, denied the southern public the true facts on what was happening in the north, with the result that the Republican movement was marginalised. That, that's a kind of a very mainstream view, I think, among Republicans. Um, is, that, is that a valid interpretation of what was happening in the south in the 70s? I think it's valid up to a point but it ignores a whole range of other contexts. Um, Firstly, there's a tremendous level of popular mobilisation, which I've kind of written about before and even spoken to yourself about um, in August 1969 and after internment and after Bloody Sunday. Um, And you have, in popular terms, um, thousands of people involved in support for northern people who were forced to come south as refugees You've got all kinds of local committees established across the state 
to welcome those people and to try and look after them. You've got um, committees set up to aid internees' families, which again, I mean, you've got people writing to Gareth Fitzgerald, Fine Gael supporters from Black Rock, talking about having raised hundreds of pounds from their neighbours to, to send to internees' families. So this is pretty widespread. And by 1973, you see a big decline. And that's already apparent throughout 1972 as the violence gets worse. Mm. Um, I think you have to understand that Southern public opinion is very sympathetic to Northern nationalists as long as they're victims. And this might be unfair, but as soon as they stop being seen as victims and as soon as the IRA begins to, to really wage, in their terms, um, a very aggressive and successful military campaign, public opinion begins to um, become more wary of them. And you also have a whole series of incidents in the South which may not be meant to signal the beginnings of, of a campaign here, but which people assume does mean. So street conflict becomes much more common. The army are called out in support of Gardaí on a very regular basis and they become, you know, it becomes almost routine. Um, you've got all kinds of confrontations around prisons and prison conditions and so on. People do fear the troubles spreading south. Now, how much of that is contrived and how much of that is genuine? Very hard to tell, but it's certainly not just the case that the state is able to do that. A government wouldn't be able to defuse a popular movement just by clicking its fingers. And the state broadcaster isn't acting as an arm of government in 1972. They're at loggerheads in many ways. And you begin to see this happening before the coalition comes to power. Um, the other thing factor I think you've got to look at is that in general terms, the 1960s were seen as a very successful decade and people began to talk about for the first time... For the country as a whole. For the, for the state as a whole. For the state, know. rather, yeah. Yeah, and, and people began to think in terms of emigration is ending, people can get jobs, people are buying cars, people are buying televisions. You know, there's a, a degree of, you know, for the first time since independence, this place is beginning to work. And then you have international recession hits in the early 70s. You, by 1972, unemployment is back mm. to the level it had been in the early 60s. You've got You've the got oil crisis. The oil believe, crisis in yeah. 73. Now, that's not connected with the North, but nevertheless, things start to go wrong. It's and I think in a lot of people's, with the North, yeah, you might say. Yeah. yeah, in a lot of people's minds, um, it's the North that's dragging us backwards now. Mm. Things are, are going bad. We've got all these troubles. You've got the rise in crime. You've got you know increasing worries about the future. And at the same time, you've got this war, which... You know, you hear again and again, and this, you know, Republicans can say this is wrong and they can make their argument. Mm -hmm. But you hear again and again by, by the end of 1972, we understood why the IRA had to do what it did in 1969 or had to do after Bloody Sunday, but they should stop now. It's mm -hmm. gone too far. And that might only be a view that you could have if you didn't live in Belfast or Derry or wherever, but it is a view that people have and it's a genuine view. Um, and it's expressed in all sorts of ways, all sorts of frustrations. At the same time, thousands of people remain engaged with the North in a variety of ways. But you do have this decline, which I think it's inescapable that a great deal of that is related to the IRA's campaign. Mm. And unfortunately, and again, people find it hard to understand why, nobody in the South identifies with the Loyalists. And therefore, the terrible things that loyalists do are assumed to be what loyalists do. Mm. Whereas people do identify with the IRA, they identify historically with republicanism. So they always judge them far more harshly. They feel a sense of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. and even, you know, I mean, 
you see that expressed in all sorts of ways, which might seem strange mm. to people now. Um, so Republicans know that themselves, I think, you know, deep down that what's a positive in some way that they are identified as part of our history can also be a negative. Whereas the loyalists have no such, for most people, there's no interest in what they're doing. Mm. They're regarded as, as terrorists. They're mm. regarded as brutal. Um, mm. But there's very little, nobody really, you know, apart from you begin to see, if you want to call it the revisionist trend, which are usually got to understand their position. But that has, that has no great, you know, in with, with the majority of the population's opinions on the subject. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to just hit you with the, the converse of that, which is um, the unionist position regarding the South, which is, and to a, to a degree, remains among people like the traditional unionists' voice, that the South was too sympathetic to the IRA. They could have nipped the conflict in the bud, and they refu- they chose not to do so by being too soft on, on Irish republicanism. I think Conor Cruz O'Brien probably uh, came to advocate this as well. Is there validity in that point of view? Well, certainly there is widespread sympathy for Northern nationalists um, in the early years of the conflict. Um, that makes it politically impossible to some extent for governments to clamp down. Even the coalition government finds it hard to do certain things because um, ultimately people do believe that the nationalists have been discriminated against and quite clearly are being oppressed in various ways. So there is um, a certain leeway for Republicans in the early 70s, which also, I mean, you do have evidence of some sympathy within both the army and the police and blind eyes being turned at various stages. Again, how much of that is, is a general policy and how much is reactions to particular incidents is another question. But the Southern state um, had a position which saw Northern Ireland as part of the the National Territory and they they held that position despite all the contradictions and despite the fact that some people like Cruz O'Brien ultimately decided that that was, that was wrong. Um, there was all kinds of secret cooperation of course and there were also you know um, there were also ways in which the Southern State would not cooperate and again you find that where certain incidents occur which have a big effect in the South like the Miami Shoban Massacre um Southern government are very angry with the British government, you know, and, and they demand to meet the British ambassador, you know, to, to to explain to them why why things like this can happen. And that is in part because that incident had a disproportionate impact in the South because thousands of people knew the Miami show band, they'd seen them in a way which they hadn't with so many other victims. And this, again, is, is one of the, the other um, problems about the way people relate to, to violence that seems far away. Um, the... Both Fine Fall and Fine Gael governments were coalition governments very determined not to allow the um, Republicans become a real threat to the southern state and afford them ability to operate. At the same time, there was always distrust of the British and that even went for the coalition to some extent and also the fact that the British state and the, the northern authorities were often contemptuous of the sort. I mean, Paddy Mulroe's book on recent book on the border shows this in greater detail. But of course, I mean, British troops crossing the border on various occasions, being contemptuous of the southern security forces, um, the British demanding things, you know, as if the southern government had no 
um, option but to do what they said um, and also the fact that Gardaí in border areas knew there was collusion between loyalists and security forces they knew that in the mid 1970s which made them you know reluctant to give information to the police because they knew the police were sharing it with with loyalists and that was a factor um, as well I mean the the Barron Commission or the inquiry into the double Monon bombings published probably a thousand pages of, of information online um, I'm surprised more people haven't looked at it because that includes a lot of material from Garda and Irish Army sources which shows the extent to which this was all problematic for them so the the unionist case that the south was simply you know a base for the IRA just isn't true but it would be you know nonsense to say that the IRA didn't have widespread sympathy particularly in the early years mm-hmm. I'm going to finish with a final proposition which is that the northern troubles created a thing we might call 26 county nationalism where the southern population ceased to identify with the idea of a united Ireland what do you think about that I think that already existed to some extent, you know, I mean, well before partition, observers and writers in the early 1900s talked about how people from the south and north often viewed each other quite differently, not just unionist and nationalist, but, you know, they'd, people like Arthur O'Cleary, who's a Sinn Féinor, but he said he never understood Ulster unionists until he met an Ulster nationalist. Um, so there was always, you know, you've people who are quite uneasy, I mean, you know, about Ulster nationalists and, and have a sort of a dislike for them, which becomes more acceptable, I think, in the 1920s when they become more of a problem. And you see elements of that maybe on the pro-treaty side uh, as well. But again, both pro- and anti-treatyites can be very dismissive of, of what they see as the, you know, the, uh, things that are getting in the, the, the way of the question of the Republic or, or other issues too. But that's, so I think there's always been a division. Um, part of that is cultural. Um, northern nationalists also may be quite dismissive of southern nationalists or quite you know um, critical of them in, in many ways even before the, the conflict but it does I think for a period increase this view and make it possible for people to be um, in their own minds partitionist so I mean and, and today when people talk about the Irish economy they mean the south they don't mean an all-Ireland economy when they talk about Ireland a lot of the time they mean the 26 counties they don't mean all of Ireland interestingly I think that has become in the last couple of years a bit more complicated with Brexit and all the rest you've got much more talk about partition now than you've had mm. for, for a long time and again I think people who weren't around in the 1970s or 1980s perhaps have less of a hang up than people who do remember that and I think that does affect people's um, attitudes to the North and to the idea of a united Ireland, whether or not they remember the modern conflict or not. I suppose the, the, the key point I wanted to make is that, or try to make, is that labels are really useful in polemic if you're involved in a political party or if you're in a political row. So, you know, revisionists, West Brits, stickies, provosts, sneaking regarders, all the rest of it. They're all useful in terms of putting people into a box. But actually, most people most of the time aren't in that box. And they can have very contradictory attitudes. And that's why you had lots of people in 1972 who went on strike after Bloody Sunday or who donated towards supporting internees, families in the North, who a few years later are utterly appalled by the North and want nothing to do with it. And it isn't that they've read the wrong book or seen the wrong programme on television. And it isn't just because they're being 
things are being censored. Although that, you know, I think the fact that the government has the ability to ban voices from radio and television is significant. But it isn't just because of those things. There's a whole range of other things that are happening. And trying to reconstruct how people felt about the North and the way, different way it affected their lives is is very, very difficult. And I think we at least need to make a start on that rather than simply seeing it in terms of, well, there was the West Brits or there was the Provos and everybody agreed with this position or everybody agreed with that position. Actually, most of the time, ideas were, were in flux. Okay, Brian Hanley, thank you very much. So that was Dr. Brian Hanley talking to John Dorney about his new book, Boiling Volcano. Thank you very much for listening to the show. Please rate and review the show on iTunes. And until next time, my name's Cahill Brennan. Thank you very much.